This episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast is brought to you by Omved Gardens. Omved Gardens is a garden and event space in North London that seeks to creatively explore, with gentle advocacy, how we can all have a positive impact on our lives and happiness by changing our relationship to the food we eat and our environment. Find out more at www.omvedgardens.com or on Instagram and Facebook at Omved Gardens. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is is life. Hello and welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm your host, eco-chef Tom Hunt, a columnist and the author of new cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. Did you know that a third of our food is wasted and that a quarter of all wasted food could actually feed the 815 million plus undernourished people around the world? In this episode, we'll be looking at how to reduce food waste by using local, sustainable ingredients and talking to chefs and experts who are championing zero-waste businesses. Please join the Chef's Manifesto. Subscribe, rate and like us below. Your feedback is important to us, not only so that we can make sure we are tapping into the subjects you care about, but to help with our reach too. Later... I'll talk to American chef Mary Sue Millican on how she is changing the landscape of cooking in California. And I'll be joined by Connor Spacey, who runs the Zero Waste restaurant Ink Cafe in Ireland. But first, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast a restaurateur, food waste activist and sustainability lecturer. Having spent 10 years in fine dining and Michelin star restaurants, he left to set up Tiny Leaf. London's first zero-waste organic vegetarian restaurant and has since launched another venture called Sativa, a circular economy farm restaurant. Here to tell us more, Justin Horn, welcome. Hello, Tom. We're good friends. We've been we've known each other for years through kind of really the zero-waste movement. We have. What do you think zero-waste is? Because different people interpret it in different ways. You're quite right. I guess there's different ways you can interpret it according to your lifestyle because everyone is attaining towards uh, zero waste, uh, well, people who work in that in that field. But depending on how you measure it, it's not obviously completely attainable due to many contributing factors, such as, you know, the energy that goes into it, petrol, water that's wasted, even if by throwing a small amount away. So how we, we worked it with our, with our restaurant, we actually worked with surplus produce that was already would have been wasted. And then what we didn't use, we gave away to Olio, uh, which is a food waste app, which I'm sure you know of. And then finally, at the end, if we couldn't use it or if it had wasted or it was, if it was too far gone, then we would turn it into, um, give it to an anaerobic digester to turn back into energy again. Amazing. So you would actually redirect food that would have otherwise been wasted and feed that and make that as your source of ingredients for the restaurant. Exactly. And I mean, that's where you start to have serious impact as well. I mean, it's one thing to minimise your waste, but to actually prevent food from going in the bin is really an achievement. So you opened Tiny Leaf in 2015, salvaging ingredients that would otherwise go to waste. Why did you open it? What was your inspiration behind it? I think the catalyst started many years ago when I was working in restaurants from a very young age, seeing the endemic waste that was being thrown away on a daily basis. And it kind of sat very wrong with me from then. So it's been in the back of my mind for a while. And then in 2015, I was working with a very wealthy client 
who spent tens of thousands of pounds on produce and it was barely touched and a lot of it was sent back to the kitchen to be thrown away. And luckily I was volunteering as a head chef in the refugee community kitchen in the jungle in Calais the following day. So I took a lot of this produce with me. The client said it was fine, I could do with it as I wished. And yeah, I took uh, quite a few boxes there to feed some of the, the volunteers who were working in, a hundred of them working in the Lauberge warehouse in the snow in you know, a very cold winter. And it was quite fun to give you know, people who wouldn't normally be eating it sort of uh, £10,000 worth of caviar and white truffles. So I made it for breakfast the following morning. I get, they had scrambled eggs with a, a spoonful of double X beluga caviar and shaved white truffles on it. <laughs> wow. That's what an incredible story. I guess what I'd love to know is at Tiny Leaf and in your cooking, you've been sourcing this or saving this food that would have otherwise been wasted and you're practicing a zero waste philosophy. But how does that manifest in terms of your cooking techniques and your approach to, yeah, really how you're cooking and serving the food in the restaurant? Has that changed how you cook? It was very challenging in the beginnings. We didn't really know what we were getting on a daily basis, so we had to sort of think on our feet and we were writing menus every day. But after the first month, we could see a pattern of what we would get, sort of softer foods that would spoil rather quickly, uh, lots of green tomatoes, uh, cucumbers, salad leaves. So we could have a, a framework that we could build our menu around. And then from that, you learn ways of using products such as, you know, preserving them, fermenting, also dehydration, using the skins, using the stalks, the leaves, all of the parts that people would traditionally in restaurants not use because they only wanted the prime cut of that, well, usually meat, but we're using vegetables, so the vegetable that they were aiming to sort of present on the plate. That, it reminds me of my zero waste philosophy, root to fruit eating. Mm -hmm. So practicing that idea of complete consumption and wasting absolutely nothing. So it sounds like you were using things like the beetroot leaves and and all of these extremities that would normally just go in the bin, which are in fact absolutely nutritious and delicious. And all of the skins as well we'd use, if we did peel things for an aesthetic dish, then the skins would be used and dehydrated and put into the bar, which they'd be seasoned and then have as bar snacks, we'd give away. We also used our juicing, the start the pulp left from the juicer to make dog treats because we were dog-friendly restaurants. So we'd have these dog treats that we'd give away to the dogs that came in so that their food that was made from waste. Oh, wow. Can you give us an example of one of your dishes? We had, obviously, there's a classic ones on there that I grew up eating, such as bubble and squeak, bread and butter pudding, which was amazing because we get different bread every day from Plant Organic, one of our partners. So we have, sometimes it'd be made with um, chocolate croissant, sometimes it'd be made with sort of seeded And this is waste breads. bread from Planet Organic? It'd be from the, it'd be from the, it was made in the morning and we'd get it in the evening or the following morning. So it was fresh, fresh bread, but they wouldn't sell it, obviously, once it's been out or been made for more than, you know. 12 hours, 8 hours, however it was. So yeah, it was an incredible organic bread that was just too good to waste. Amazing. So we've got chefs listening to the programme. What advice would you give them to reducing waste in their kitchens? Well, there's many ways one can go about this. I mean, to chefs and home chefs as well. I think it comes back to how, in the initial stage where you um, source from and how you shop. If you, I mean, this applies a lot to, towards uh, supermarkets as well when they're cooking at home if they you know planning ahead and making lists rather than impulse buying and buying things that are on offer for uh, two for one deals etc and also another great way is to shop at um, farmers markets like we have in London there's great London's farmers market which you can find at lfm.org.uk which I go to every week uh, you have less packaging on there you have much more organic produce and it's a lot fresher as well because it's come straight from the farm that day. It's not been sitting around. So you've got more chance of it lasting longer in your kitchen and less chance of it spoiling so quickly. Also, 
storing food correctly is another great uh, way to save food. That things that produce a lot of ethylene gas, like bananas or avocados, tomatoes, lots of English varieties as well, like peaches, pears, apricots, produce a lot of ethylene. So you want to store them away from other things that are going to spoil faster, like such as your berries or or potatoes, which are going to ripen too quickly. So you want to sort of store these separately. And one of my other favourites, and one of yours I know, is uh, learning how to preserve. Preserving food will, will last a lot longer, especially in bars and restaurants. If you have a lot of lemons and limes which are used in cocktails, you can actually add like 2% salt to them, pack them in a jar, and yeah, you can preserve lemons on, a, on rotation. There's actually a nice recipe on Tastemade that I did uh, last year on preserved lemons. Oh, brilliant. Is it a film? Or? It's a film, yes. Yeah, so so I did about 12, 12 episodes on there, and one of them's on preserved lemons. I will check that out. So I'd love to know a bit about how you've progressed and expanded your approach to food sustainability beyond food preservation since opening Tiny Leaf. Can you tell us about your new restaurant, Sativa? So yes, this is a circular economy concept of, of a restaurant rather than sourcing a lot of produce from outside and having the air miles on it we thought we'd bring it in-house and emulate mother nature in the building so we are um, growing our own produce on site that we are sequestering the carbon that's produced in the building from our biodigester and chp unit which is combined heat and power so our food any food waste that we have an avoidable food waste goes into our digester which is then produces biogas fertilizer and electricity and energy and then the co2 from that is then fed to the plants that we grow downstairs and we grow about 200 varieties of, of crops in there on rotation um, from from tomatoes we've got about three different types of tomatoes cucumbers melons lots of vine crops um, and then obviously all the herbs uh, basil we've got lots of different colored basils cilantro sorry, cilantro i'll just come back from traveling um, coriander uh, and parsley uh, and mints and all those things plus trailing plants like nasturtium and then lettuces and cabbages and smaller things like that so we're working with farmers actually with our digestate that we produce inside the restaurant to give to the farmers that we can't so we can't grow cereal crops and root crops they're not it's not viable to be growing them in, inside a building so we work with organic partners and because all our produce is organic we're also producing organic fertilizer so we work with uh, our partners there to trial on growing using our fertilizer to grow the plants that we buy back off of them we also have our tell you with our sister company ecofet is a sustainable tableware now and lifestyle brand so we have all the produce we have in the restaurant all our, all our tableware glassware lamps uh, we're expanding uh, daily basis plates we are actually now making our own plates from some of our waste so yeah everything is local native to england and yeah working with foragers as well and then we've got a whole uh, fermentation area inside the restaurant so yeah kind of emulating there's no waste in nature so we're kind of trying to copy as close as we can what mother nature does brilliant so could you tell us a little bit of, about your work with El the ellen MacArthur foundation as well please yes i'm loving what the guys are doing down there on the isle of Wight. we've been working with those for about two two or three years now maybe three years with a disruptive innovation festival uh last year that we, well, me, I was down there at the at the sail loft. We did a sort of live cooking demos. I've also been involved with their Cities and Circular Economy for Food Initiative, which they launched last year at Davos, I think. But they've been working on that for about a year before that. So I was on on the board of Think Tank with those guys, helping them with the different cities, well, with London especially. I think I just spoke with Nick Jeffries today, and they're actually looking at launching in East Africa in the coming year. I'd love to hear a bit more about if you've managed to kind of connect the work that you're doing directly with the Sustainable Development Goals. 
Yes, we have. So the work we're doing there, I think we, we, I looked over it earlier and we're covering uh, SDG 2, 3, 7, 9, 11, 12, 13, 15 and 17. So that's nearly all of them that we are targeting with some different initiatives that we are working with within our building. It's also working with a manifesto. Yeah, so it's, it's a great way to have a framework to work around and then plug into that as well, which is easy, easily accessible for chefs who don't really know how to translate the SDGs into a workable sort of framework that they can use in their own kitchens. You were telling us about sativa and your incredible circular farm philosophy. I guess part of that is really supporting a diversity of different ingredients and therefore biodiversity. How do you think we can encourage chefs to use a more a wider range of ingredients? Very good question. Well, one of the biggest threats going forward uh, to humans is a loss of biodiversity and climate change. And as has been mentioned recently, that we do not eat of the 300,000, I think it is, edible plants. We roughly eat about 150 of those. And 75% of our food comes from about 12 plants and animals. Uh, so that's really not given us as much nutrients and micronutrients and macronutrients and uh, essential minerals, etc., that we need to survive. Well, the monocrops that we're that are being farmed industrially are really sort of not beneficial for our bodies. So to to increase biodiversity, there's there's I think a few ways that we can do that. There's been some studies shown recently that about 15 of them that the more women are involved in the decision making uh, in agrobiodiversity and dietary biodiversity, found to have be much stronger links in households run by women. So I think the empowerment of women is one of the key initiatives that we could bring forward from this because they actually make much better decisions I think on a global scale uh, with nutritional decisions um, and also I think that making it sexy making all the all the foods out there all the plants I mean foraging is something that's coming into the the fore now all these products have been there for millions of years and the more chefs sort of champion these uh, amazing products that we have out there wild foods and uh, I mean nettles for example nettles are a superfood that uh, growing everywhere as a weed, but they have much more magnesium than even a bucket. You'd have to eat an entire like bucket of spinach to get the same amount as you would from one portion of nettles. So I think a bit of education and making it fun, because something about food is that you want it to be enjoyable, pleasurable, because we do eat for pleasure. So if we can bring that back into uh, the food that we eat, then I think that we're going to you know, be able to start eating more varied, varied um, crops. And I think chefs are obviously a large part of that. Chefs are the rock stars of today. So if they start promoting, you know, how how, they, how a trend can change from almond milk, for example, if, if chefs start promoting more biodiverse foods, then people are going to start eating more more diverse plates of food. Yeah, I mean, as a chef, really, it's just exciting, isn't it? It's like the discovery of new ingredients. Other, on another interview, I spoke to Pierre Chim, who was telling ah, telling me about Fonio. Yes, it's incredible. Which is, yeah, this other interesting grain that we should all be eating. Well, as you know, Hodmadoz are doing that in the UK. We work a lot with those. I know that um, Chantal has been working a lot with them as well. They are promoting uh, heritage grains in the UK. Uh, amazing things that we've been growing for 10,000 years. I mean, all the grains that we have and all the plants in the world have been here for millennia, but we just forget to eat them. So they're bringing that into the forefront of chefs' minds and also growing a international crop. So they're growing in Essex, they're growing quinoa and in Yorkshire. So we have smoked quinoa as well, which they're producing on the farm. So within 50 miles of our restaurant, we can actually get quinoa rather than having the carbon footprint coming in from South America. They're also now growing split peas and lentils and all these crops that would normally be grown in other countries. We have the right climate for it here. 
And I spoke with them the other day, actually, um, with Nick from Hodmodods, and they are looking at growing millets, because millets in the UK aren't something we only grow for bird feed. But it's one of the most nutritious and incredible superfoods that we can eat. And they are, yeah, they're, they're working with one of their farmers, and they're going to be growing millet in the UK, which I think is very exciting. Really exciting. Anahita Dondi's spoken to us about millet as she well. She does. She's the champion. We're She's hitting, the millet champion the of India. Yeah, yeah. I myself use Hobmadods as well. Hobmadods is, for those listeners that haven't heard of them, is a UK company that supplies different pulses and grains to mostly chefs but also as products and we need to get it out there don't we into more restaurants and um, supermarkets as well they do and they're actually doing similar similar um the guys are doing at noma making their locally made um, miso they've actually been making one with uh, british fava beans so they've made a they've got fava bean umami kind of miso paste that they've uh, been developing in the uk as well which is quite exciting to get that that extra fifth flavor into your into your food so delicious I guess one last question to finish us off. Why do you think chefs are an important part of this conversation? Chefs, as you and I and a lot of people we know, you know, we, we are conduit to how people are fed. So if chefs make different choices, then globally people will eat different food. And we are the guardians of nature's larder. So working with farmers and ourselves at each end of the food chain, you know, we can make a difference coming together. So you know, we're very important in the, well, everyone has to eat, don't they? Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on Thank the show. Thank you, Tom. Great chatting. Thank you, buddy. I'm joined now by a chef, restaurateur, cookbook author and TV personality who has worked all over the world. In 1981, she founded the acclaimed City Cafe in Los Angeles and along with her collaborator, Susan Feniger, is responsible for changing the culinary landscape of LA. She joins me now down the line. Mary Sue Milliken, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. So I'd love you to tell us a little bit about your career and how it's led towards an interest in sustainability and food waste. Yes. Well, I have always been super passionate about food and literally graduated high school a year early so I could go to chef school and then on to apprenticeships in France and then working back in Chicago and then opening Uh, City Cafe in 81 when I was 23 uh, with my business partner, Susan Feniger. So we, I think it's kind of a natural evolution the way, you know, one's career kind of moves because by the time I had my children, which was, you know, another 10, 15 years later, I started to really think about where the food was coming from that I was cooking for my guests and then for my family and I started to think about, you know, how could I, what, how could I be the best mother in the world to my sons, but also to, you know, my customers? How could I make sure that the food I was buying was really, well, first and foremost, good for them. But then, you know, good for your body is one thing, but good for the planet started to become something I was concerned with as well. I think the first big sustainable initiative we took on in our businesses was sustainable seafood. And Mm -hmm. that was in the late 90s when we decided we would not serve any fish unless it was sustainable. And I always say to my staff and to my customers, you know, I want to make sure my great grandchildren can also taste the fish and the seafood that I'm eating. And for that reason, I have to be really careful and aware about what kind of fish I'm buying and serving. You know, chefs, what I learned from 
working with the Monterey Bay Aquarium on seafood sustainability issues was that chefs uh, prepare up to uh, like around 75 or 80 percent of the seafood consumed in the United States is consumed outside the home. So I realized that if, if we could get a lot of chefs educated and passionate about seafood sustainability on big, big levels, chefs who, you know, purchase millions of pounds of seafood, then we could really make a huge difference. So, you know, I, I got, I became kind of an advocate and have for a long time been trying to work with chefs on, you know, different kinds of sustainability issues. But I feel like we've really moved the, na- the needle here in the United States on uh, seafood. And we're working on many other initiatives as well to, um, you know, just to be conscientious purchasers. And chefs are unique in, in that we are kind of the link between farmers and consumers you know, chefs and grocers and, you know, the people in the food system who are really buying tons and tons of food. So it's kind of a, a unique place to be. And it, it feels like, for me, a responsibility to really, you know, look carefully at, at, at my purchasing. I'd agree. I mean, especially when it comes to reducing food waste as well. I mean, an individual at home can have a small impact. But of course, a restaurateur, you can multiply that by many thousands or millions of times. And that simply multiplies its impact, doesn't it? Yes. Food waste is an interesting issue because I grew up uh, in a home where my mother had lived through the Depression and was incredibly frugal and, you know, to the point of washing every plastic bag out and using it 35 times before it had a hole in it and then it got thrown away. You know, and I also had the benefit of uh, working in French restaurants where uh, every bit of, you know, from nose to tail, from root to leaf, every bit of every product that came through the back door had a use. But the pendulum has swung so far And I'm finding now that um, the people I employ and uh, the value of labor has created a situation where waste is just sort of second nature in homes and kitchens and and in restaurants. And that's something that's really alarming. And we have to really, you know, we have to really figure out how to how to get smart about food waste. Um, One of the things that that Susan and I are doing now is we just have opened a new restaurant called Socolo in Santa Monica. And um, I think this is our third week. That's why my voice is hoarse (laughs) because I've been working doubles for three weeks, three weeks in a row and screaming a lot. Incredible. Um, Not screaming, just talking a lot. But one of the things we've done is uh, we have three or four dishes on the menu that are based on the farmer's market and so we don't, we're not locked into a specific vegetable, but we can see whatever's fresh and gorgeous and kind of speaking to us at the time. And then we also have the ability to take things like uh, the fennel stems or the broccoli stems and, you know, peel them and, and cut them and in a way that they kind of go well. Like we, we do a, a farmer's market chilaquiles, which is a dish that was born out of food waste, really. In Mexico, you know, in the morning when uh, moms didn't have, had leftover chips and salsas, they would put them together in a little frying pan and warm them up and 
uh, add a little bit of cheese and some cilantro and maybe some diced onion and maybe crack a, a fry, put a fried egg on top and that would be breakfast. Brilliant. Actually, I just included that in my zero waste column in The Guardian. Um, I'm discovering all of these incredible zero waste recipes from all around the world. And that was one of them. I was really impressed. Yeah. So for for our our kind of take on chilaquiles is that we sneak in lots of vegetables, like we'll saute those stems of the fennel and the the woody, mar- you know, the stems of the broccoli, anything that we can find that's still delicious, but, you know, not necessarily something people are used to seeing on their plate alone. And we saute it with a little bit of olive oil, salt and pepper, and then we add that to the chilaquiles. And um, it's quite amazing. People are really loving it not only because they feel like they're doing something better for their bodies, but because it really does taste good. You know, um, greasy chips and salty salsa. You know, I I feel like uh, chefs have for a long time gotten away with, you know, relying heavily on sugar, salt, fat, whereas, you know, we are more creative than that. We We could certainly do better than just make food addictively delicious by using all the things that, you know, in excess that aren't necessarily great for your body, we're finding. So so people are loving these, these chilaquiles, the farmer's market chilaquiles, because they have vegetables in them. And, and so they feel like they're getting that delicious, addictive kind of chip and salsa, warm and, and gooey with some cheese. But they're also getting fresh vegetables that, you know, that also taste great alongside. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, another, I just remembered another kind of zero waste recipe, Mexican style recipe, which I've featured, and that's for tapache. I don't know if that's something that you've made or served using kind of like the shell or like the rind of an organic pineapple fermented. Yes, yes. we have served it. And um, we we are kind of, um, we have an interesting bar program and we're using lots of the peelings of, as you say, pineapple or mango or other things to, to make sort of um, flavored shrubs that we use in our cocktails. That's another great way to not waste food and to use every bit of the product that comes through the back door. Delicious. And for those of our listeners that don't know, a shrub is a vinegar that's been sweetened and flavored with fruit. Totally delicious. And as you said, a really good way to use up leftovers. Are there any other projects that you're pursuing currently in your restaurants that you'd like to tell us about? Yes. As a matter of fact, there's an initiative here in California called Zero Food Print. I'm very excited about it because I'm able to assure my customers that my business and the impact my business has on the planet is a zero carbon footprint because I'm uh, donating 1% of sales to a fund called Restore California, which is rapidly recruiting and helping farmers transition from conventional farming to regenerative farming. And by transitioning farmers into regenerative agriculture, they're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back down in the ground and actually have the, the opportunity to perhaps reverse climate change, which I feel um, is the first hopeful thing I've heard about climate change in a lot, in you know many years of kind of gloom and doom. 
So it's exciting. And um, as a matter of fact, tonight I'm having 100 chefs in my restaurant to talk about zero food print and to explain what we're doing and hopefully recruit other restaurateurs to join. And um, when you eat at Socolo, you'll see at the bottom of the check a, a little blurb that says 1% will un... This is not a proper word to use in a podcast, but 1%... To unfuck the planet. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, it, and it's only one percent. So, as a consumer, when you think about, you know, one percent—that's nothing, really, in the scope of or the scheme of your life. For for so many of us, I'm, I know for some people, it is any percentage is too much because there's also the problem of poverty on the planet. But, but basically. I think it's a hopeful message and it's I'm proud of California really putting together a real climate change plan and being the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. I feel like there's an opportunity here to kind of uh, make a statement and, you know, possibly be be leaders in a path forward that is going to, you know, allow for a planet for my grandkids. (laughs) Absolutely. Before we wrap up, I'd just love to hear your view on why chefs are important in this conversation. You know, chefs are, by nature, I think, caregivers, and, and we, we want to take care of others. That's kind of why we, I think, get into the business. It's part of what really drives our creative passion, and we're constantly trying to find ways to delight and surprise and, you know, excite our customers and take care of them and restore them. That's where the the word restaurant came from originally, you know, to come to my restaurant so I can restore you and, and you'll be fresh and ready, invigorated to go out into the day. So I think the other thing about chefs is that we are suddenly not even that explicably for me, I mean, when I started and became a chef, you know, my mom was like, well, why don't you just become an auto mechanic? You know, it was not <laughs> a sexy rock star job. And now it is, you know, chefs are really trusted and looked up to and admired and have been given a platform like rock stars. And so what we do and what we say and what we think and how we lead really can have an impact, a bigger impact than, say, if it all the auto mechanics got together and said, let's fight climate change. <laughs> so I think there's, you know, there's those two things that kind of work together. We're, we naturally chefs want to uh, take care of people and the planet. And we also have an, a platform that um, I think it's our responsibility to use wisely. So that's, you know, an interesting place to be. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Mary. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Lovely to be here. Our next guest is a very passionate chef who works with the seasons. He's always seeking out great Irish produce and is the force behind pop-up restaurant Spilt Milk, which showcases Irish ingredients with a contemporary twist. He is always pushing the envelope and takes time to learn about farming and wild foods, which he incorporates at his new restaurant, Ink Cafe. The cafe is based in Dunleary and prides itself on being zero waste, whilst also serving up superb food. Welcome to the podcast, Connor Spacey. Thank you very much, Tom. Delighted to uh, be talking to you today. I'd love to know a bit more about Ink Cafe uh, and your approach to zero waste. 
Yeah, so so Ink Cafe is open almost six months now. And what we did with Ink was we, we set it up in a way that it had our philosophy to showcase to the public how to use seasonal Irish ingredients, but also how to use everything that comes in to our restaurant. Um, and what I mean by that is, so we would work ahead on our larder. So we would pickle and ferment. So um, a lot of our uh, food waste. And so if you think about it, what we're doing is what we're using today on our, on our current menu is pickles and ferments and so on that we would have had from our summer menu. And we'd work in advance of that. Um, and then what we're pickling now, we would introduce, say, after Christmas and so on. So it's about using up everything, but incorporating it into great dishes as well, rather than just pickling, fermenting, you know, for the sake of a zero waste. We want to use everything. So we make sure that we incorporate it into all our dishes um, and work ahead. So we always work within the seasons for our fresh food. And then our pickling and fermenting program um, kicks into the following season after up to two months, depending on the product of uh, what we are actually pickling or fermenting. Amazing. And it sounds like your pickling program is really dependent on on the seasons and extending it through into the other months of the year. Something I haven't really considered so much before in terms of preserving food, how it's really an extension of the season. And that's it. And I think where I come up with the idea, like I didn't obviously invent this. I'm going back and looking at history. I'm looking at food history. And I, you know, and this was a very common practice where people would pickle and ferment, especially coming into the winter seasons. They would have pickled and fermented from the summer to ensure that they had a larder of food um, to see them through the winter months. We're lucky today where we do have uh, Irish crops that grow throughout the year. Um, there is a dry spell around February, March, where nothing is kind of harvested. Um, and when you're pickling and fermenting, you kind of take all that into account. And you look, it's about looking ahead and going, you have an idea from talking to the farmers and growers what they're planting and when it's going to be ready. But you also know that coming down the line, there's a dry spell um, where nothing will be harvested. And so that's where our pickling and fermenting program kicks in even more as well. So it really is about taking old practices and bringing them into modern food. Absolutely. And it sounds like you're kind of take learning from your own culture and traditions to improve your and kind of respect your natural resources and reduce waste, which is another quite quite romantic way of looking at a zero waste philosophy, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I think what opened my eyes, Tom, was that we, we, we visit a lot of farms and we visit a lot of growers and so on in Ireland. And if you if I give you some stats on it, like so 10 years ago, there was over 600 horticulturists, vegetable growers in Ireland. Today, there's only 140. Really? So there's more. Yeah, there's more and more people leaving the business because it's not financially sustainable for them. And that didn't sit well with me. And I just thought we got to protect them and we got to use them. Um, it's kind of that whole case scenario where if you don't lose, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. And that kind of opened my eyes to going, this is not right. I'm not comfortable knowing that, you know, this this tradition in Ireland of growing great vegetables is dying out. People aren't sticking at it and we're reliant more and more on imports. And it kind of it, it just made me rethink and look at everything that we're doing and go, we, we, we have to stop this. It's a huge amount of work. And I think to throw any part of that away is just wrong. I yeah. mean, it, it, it doesn't make any sense when you see the amount of work gone into um, growing this, gone into protecting the soil, 
gone into um, the entire farming process. I mean, they're, they're working months and months before they even get to harvest anything where they even have an income coming. So you imagine some farmers might be in a situation that could work from four to six months, depending on the crop, without any income coming from that crop, uh, waiting for it to be harvested. And then they're not supported uh, nationally, uh, whereby, you know, supermarkets and so on are are bringing imported um, produce. And it's, I think it's left to the chefs to kind of stop that um, and, and go back to actually using what's grown in our country, what time of year it's ready at, and hopefully influence the public then to do the same when they go into supermarkets or farmers markets and so on to look for that produce as well. Yeah. And that's where the whole idea came. That's where the whole ethos came about. Because when you look at this great produce, the work that's gone into it, it makes no sense to throw any part of it away. As a consumer or as an eater, you have a certain amount of power um, through the way that you eat and through the types of farming that you support. But as a chef or even uh, a caterer such as yourself, that impact is multiplied by hundreds and thousands of times, depending on the meals that you're serving. And of course, you know, if you can spend that money on kind of supporting your local economy and investing in your in the livelihoods of the local economy, uh, people in the local economy, but also the global economy, you're having a huge impact as a chef. Absolutely. And that's where um, chefs play such an important role. Um, but it's also about chefs being responsible. If you think about it, if, you, if you're, if you're um, working in a restaurant, hotel, cafe, and you have what I call a purse of money, which I, obviously you do to buy your ingredients, it only makes sense that you be very responsible to what and how you buy. Um, you know, and, and it's trying to get chefs as well to see that and not just pick up the phone and order something because they want to cook it. Rather, do your homework, look at what's available, look at what's local or what's national that's in season and buy that. You know what I mean? Rather than chefs writing menus because there's a certain dish they want to create, it should be the other way around. It should be looking at what the larder is, what's growing and available today, and then being creative with that. So it's kind of turning how a chef thinks um, back to, to, to how it should be. I couldn't agree more. And um, I'm able to do that because I help run an independent small restaurant where those values are, are very core. But you work uh, on a much, much bigger scale. And I think that's what sets you apart from your competitors, from what I can see. You are kind of walking the walk and you are really kind of serving local, sustainably sourced food with minimal waste, but on a huge scale. How do you do that without it affecting your bottom line? And would you recommend that other large caterers like yourselves or bigger go in the same direction? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I think, yes, the business we're in, which is contract catering, and we, we have 20 restaurants here in Ireland. We have some more to open in the next few months. Um, and I think we were able to use food space as, as a, a footprint almost to show that catering on a large scale can be sustainable, um, that it's not about procurement systems, um, and it's about knocking that um, different business model on its head, turning it upside down and showing that there's a different business model that works, that can be sustainable and both financially sustainable as well. And for me, it's also trying to influence the other much larger companies than us that are um, working in, in Ireland and working throughout Europe and so on to show them that they also have that same responsibility. 
I mean, if you think what I spend on money or what I spend on food a year, they're spending quadruple that, 10 times that on food a year. Um, and they need to be responsible as well. And, and our business model kind of shows that when, so if you think of a, of a, of a basic uh, profit and loss sheet, where um, at the bottom of your sheet, you, so you'll you have your income, your cost of sales, and then your, your um, gross profit, and then your, your overheads. But at the very bottom of that, there's always a wastage percentage. And depending on the hotel or restaurant, it could be anything from 4% up to 10% wastage that they allow for. But if you're not wasting anything, that 10% goes back up onto your top line. So it's almost like a different business model. So you, if you don't have a waste margin, because you're not wasting anything, that's more profit going back in, which makes you still financially sustainable as well. So it's just about, it's about breaking those bad habits and um, yeah, kind of showing that, they, you know, this model, first of all, it, it works, but second of all, it has to work because the future of food depends on it. As mad as that might sound or as scary as that might sound, we know how bad things are um, globally and food is the biggest problem, but food is also the biggest answer. So it's kind of, you know, how do you do it right? And to me, this is all I know. And it's kind of how it makes sense to me. And hopefully it does influence others to look and go, okay, guys, we need to do more as well. You know, we need to look at this and look at our procurement systems and um, how we buy food, where our food comes from. And, and look, like, as I say, deep dive in every single thing that comes into your kitchen um, and make the, the right decisions as to what you're doing and why. What's so interesting is that you've come to the same conclusions that I have um, through my food writing and through developing my root to fruit philosophy in the sense that what we do by reducing our waste is that we create a, a budget for buying those better quality ingredients. And that, of course, works at every level whether you're cooking for two people or you're cooking for 2,000, you're still going to cut down waste and create, uh, well, and obviously kind of create a budget for, for cooking better yeah. food. And that's how the majority of, of food, no matter it be hotels, restaurants, are not run that way. And, and it's trying to showcase, well, actually, it makes sense to do it. It's sustainable and, and they should be doing it. You know, and, and I really do hope the food space can, can, can uh, showcase that and influence others to do the same. So have you got any examples of specific big wins when it comes to reducing your waste? Are there any things that you were like filling up your bins with on a huge scale that are now kind of transformed and becoming a dish on a menu? Or Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing for us, um, because the food was something we always did from day one. We, we, we always looked at uh, working with our, I hate the word even waste products. I don't have another name for it. We always worked on that. Our biggest win in the last, say, year when we kind of developed recipes with was actually use coffee grounds. We sell a lot of coffee, like thousands of cups a day. So coffee grounds was always a huge problem. Um, I was never happy even sending it to a compost because I always thought, that's just an easy way out. You know, you know, what else can we do with it? We started, well, two years ago now, we started um, using it in our soils. So we did like two, two-thirds soil to one-third coffee grounds. Um, and we grow like herbs and light salads, lettuces and so on, edible flowers with it. And it, it adds nutrients into the soil. And it also works as like a barrier to keep away bugs and slugs and so on coming into the plants. And that worked very well and still does today. But it didn't use up all our coffee. We still had more and more coffee because our sales, because we sell so much of it. Um, and then recently we developed a recipe whereby 
we made a pickle. It's almost taken looking at a, say, a pastrami. That's where I got the idea from. I thought, okay, but if I can make a pickle using used coffee grounds and also the chaff, which is the skin off the coffee, because to me being a zero waste, it made sense that if, if we have guys roasting coffee for us, their waste is the chaff, which is the skin, which is removed during the roasting process. So when we get a delivery of coffee, we also get the skins delivered as well. Um, to reduce that waste again because there's no point in leaving that waste in somebody else's warehouse when we created it by making a product for us so with the chaff we were able to um, make a pickle so to speak that we the coffee grounds that we marinate beef in for like 72 hours and it comes out like this pastrami that we slow roast slice really really thinly um, and we use it we just serve it like in a lovely sourdough with fresh horseradish um, and some fresh spinach, and it's gorgeous. It's, it's like a take on a big New York deli sandwich. It's great to hear that you're taking it to that level. Would you be happy to share that recipe with our listeners? Absolutely, absolutely would. The more okay. the better, and that really is what it's about. It's that philosophy of taking zero waste to everything. So, I mean, if if, if waste is being created to give us a product into our kitchen, well, then we're also responsible for that waste that mightn't have happened in our kitchen but it happened on the journey to our kitchen. So it was kind of going back and looking. I always say to the guys, look outside the four walls of the kitchen, look at what we might be creating unknowing to ourselves beyond our kitchen, as in terms of waste, so we can have a product. And then how do we tackle that? And coffee was our first thing to look at. There's lots more we still haven't even looked at yet. We're on that journey, as I call it, because it's a bit of a Pandora's box. Once you start to really change your mindset and look at waste, it's almost never-ending because once you find a solution, there's another problem um, and then you've got to tackle that as well. But once you're on that journey, you're already making a difference. It would be great to know, in terms of your inedible food scraps, do you compost them or what, what happens to them? We do, we, we compost. And in fact, there's not an awful lot that's almost inedible. We've been very lucky in kind of, what I say, messing around and trying to find different solutions. Not everything works. Some things go horribly wrong, and we've learned from that as well. Um, and I suppose what happens is, even after we've pickled or fermented something, then there's a byproduct of that. So, for instance, we we do import exotic fruits that we can't grow here in Ireland. And with the skins, say, of pineapples or melons, we uh, ferment for eight weeks into vinegar. So once we've done that, then we still have this skin off the pineapple or the melon, which is, we've got another product out of it, we've done what we can with it that does then go to compost. Um, and that compost then, what we compost on site is put back into our own flower beds and otherwise it's taken away to be composted as well, all depending on which restaurant we're, we're uh, working in. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's only, you get you get to a stage where you've got as much product as you can out of something and then you do end up with like that uh, fruit skin or something that you've already um, fermented into vinegar and then you've got you to deal with that into compost. Yeah. And I mean, then it comes full circle. For me, compost is is actually one of the most important parts of the conversation. Because if, if we're sending our byproducts or food scraps that can't be eaten into landfill, then of course, we are not only wasting all of the hidden resources that went in to produce that food, but we're also continuing to impact the environment through the methane gases which or and greenhouse gases, which are 20 times more impactful than carbon dioxide in a landfill situation. So it's amazing what you're doing, Connor, and it's always an inspiration to talk to you. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problems. Thanks a million, Tom.
Good to talk to you. And that's all for this episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Please subscribe to join me next time when I'll be looking at how local seasonal produce can help improve our food system. And I'll be talking to Alva Lim and Leonilda Jimenez about the Timor Leste Food Lab and to British chefs India Hamilton and Oliver Rowe. See you next time. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth. Friendly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare. Investment in livelihoods. Value natural resources. And reduced waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. Celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible, accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs>